Hi, I'm Ashley, one of the producers here at Pitchfork Economics. Today, we're re-releasing an episode that we originally published in January of 2020 that tackles the issue of corporate parasites. Corporations have become richer than ever during the pandemic, enriching CEOs and shareholders while stockpiling more and more money. It's not fair, but it becomes even more unfair when you realize that every company you can think of has benefited from a public investment. Whether it's direct handouts through the tax code, government research efforts, employee reliance on programs like EITC or TANF, or even just plain old corporate tax avoidance, taxpayers are subsidizing wildly profitable companies. David Dan, the executive editor of The American Prospect, and Financial Times associate editor Rana Faruhar, join Nick and Zach on this episode to explain how we let corporate parasites get so out of control and what we can do about it. Whether you're listening for the first or second time, we hope you enjoy. What we're talking about is what we love to refer to as the parasite economy. We have allowed concentrated corporate power to uh, maintain such control over society. And to be fair, a lot of them are doing things that are perfectly legal. For sure. There's a few people winning and almost everybody else is losing. I got to think we're going to have some major social unrest. You're basically going to be sharpening up the guillotines. <laughs> Pitchforks, baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. Hey, I'm Zach Silk, and I'm the president of Civic Ventures. So, Zach, on this episode of Pitchfork Economics, we are going to explore the multitudinous ways uh, that big corporations misbehave in the economy and, you know, take part in all sorts of forms of parasitic behavior and, you know, violating norms and laws and rules that... Uh, that have existed in our economy for a long time to solve the collective action problems that a human economy is. Yeah. For example, they take massive advantage of the tax code. Right. They take massive advantage of this regulatory regime. They manipulate the rules to benefit them and harm others. Right. And then there's this norm behavior that has also shifted. And I know you've talked about that a lot, that when you grew up in your family company, of course, there was the taxes you needed to pay, the regulations you needed to follow, but there also was just behavior that you behavior. would do, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, and it, my favorite story, I've told it, I think, before on the podcast at least once, was that, you know, when I went to work for the family business, my, I wanted to buy a sport. My brother and I wanted to buy sports cars, and my dad forbid it <laughs> uh, because he thought it looked terrible that these young know-nothings, frankly, would be paid enough to drive sports cars when the folks who were, you know, at least as far as my dad was concerned, were far harder and were far more useful to the to the business than us, uh, couldn't afford to do that. And so until I was 28 years old, I shared a car with my younger brother, which is just astonishing to think about when you reflect on it today. But such behavior you would not find at Facebook today yeah. or Google yeah. or really any other corporation Yeah, and when America. you combine yeah. this kind of <laughs> neoliberal ideology, which informs what's happening in the rulemaking, 
the policymaking and the behavior of our governments as they're manipulated by this yeah. with these kind of immoral behavior and this desire to be a parasite rather yeah. than a producer. Right. It just leads us to where we are, which right. is, of course, there's a few v- people winning and almost everybody else is, is losing. Right. And, you know, we're going to talk to a couple of really super interesting guests who are going to help us explore these topics. But the, the um, definitely the intersection between the technology business and the finance business is a nexus for this misbehavior. Yeah. Right. And, you know, the way in which the financial services industry has migrated from a service to to the real economy to help it grow by providing capital and services to an industry in and of itself that simply serves its own interests, you know, is a really is a really interesting manifestation of that. And then, you know, the way in which companies like, for instance, Facebook are transnational, right? They they can have their data in any place. They can pay taxes in any place. They serve as many customers, well, more customers than any single country. I think today has has citizens, you know, and th- and therefore it gives it an ability s- simply to outrun all of the rules and norms that have constrained corporate behavior in the in the past. That you know, all of these are really super interesting. Um, things to explore. Yeah, if you think about it in our kind of parasite way, there are these little parasites happening all around us, and then there are these super parasites, yeah. you know, these unbelievably super bugs that yeah. are really taking a lot of the value, a lot of the value that we create and as get sucked out of your local economy right. and taken elsewhere, sometimes right. beyond the borders. Right, exactly. And, like the hundreds of billions of dollars in corporate profits hiding in you know, various global low-tax jurisdictions, which could be used, for instance, in the United States of America to solve our infrastructure problem or our, um, you know, the the woeful state of our uh, public education system or whatever it is, right? Like there are so many things that we could use that money for and instead... um, We've got these, you know, like hundreds of billions of dollars sitting in some bank account somewhere and... Yeah, and then I know there's a lot of stories that have been written about how the smaller bugs, <laughs> the little ones, the parasite, the smaller parasites, they're manipulating rules every single day. Yeah. Little tax loopholes here, this regulatory malfeasance there, which ultimately means that the, the public good, the commonwealth, is suffering. Yeah. Not only do they take from us directly, but of course, they are benefiting from the public investments that we have made that has created the opportunity for what they're doing. Yeah. You know, the best possible example of this is basically every company you can think of has benefited from a public investment, whether it was through public research, yeah. R&D, or a direct uh, a direct build of an entire industry. You right. Know, I mean, uh, whether it's roads or the the uh, public infrastructure that created the internet. GPS. Or, yeah. You know. Um, how about the air traffic control system, which allows people to fly safely from one place to another? Yeah. <laughs> All, All these of these things, things right? are a consequence of public investments that these folks are seeking to invo- avoid. Yeah, I mean, there's no coincidence that the time that we had the fastest, largest, yeah. most equitable growth in this country coincided with when we were making the best, most equitable investments. Yeah. And we did so in a way that allowed 
prosperity to grow. I mean, it was not about choking capitalism. It actually was about feeding it. Yeah. And we ultimately ended up with really large corporations that benefited a lot of people. And and, and now we've kind of tipped over. Yeah. So our first guest is uh, an amazing uh, guy named David Dayan, who is the executive editor of The American Prospect and has written extensively about these issues. Yeah. David is one of our first reads. He's somebody yeah. that you ought to be following if you're interested in these subjects. I'm really excited to talk to him. My name is David Dayan. I am the executive editor of The American Prospect, and I live in Los Angeles, California. Well, David, uh, today we wanted to uh, pick your brain about a subject that I know you know a lot about, which is corporate welfare, what we call in our our shop um, parasitism. You know, you have written extensively about this. Uh, you, You talk about it a lot. For our listeners, would you sort of lay out what the problem is, you know, just sort of explain the issue. I think one thing that's interesting is that we hear a lot of conservative denunciations of the welfare state, that these people who are uh, allegedly undeserving receive these benefits uh, while, you know, doing nothing for them. Uh, And these are meager benefits, right? Food stamps, welfare to the extent that it exists anymore in that, what they call TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, uh, Medicaid, things like that. The truth is that the largest amount of funding that could be seen as a welfare payment, which is, uh, uh, you know, as conservatives characterize it, goes to the largest corporations in America. And it does so in a number of different ways. I mean, one is certainly through the tax code. Uh, We just got a, a report recently that the effective tax rate for the top 400 corporations in America uh, after the Trump tax cuts was something like 11%. Even our current number, that's about half of what the the nominal uh, corporate tax rate is supposed to be. So uh, obviously, there are a lot of perks, a lot of gifts, a lot of handouts being given through the tax code. Sometimes those handouts are very direct. I mean, we see this in the states all the time to uh, attempt to attract a business to relocate in their area, uh, hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of dollars are given to large corporations who certainly could afford the relocation expenses uh, in order that they uh, show up in a, a certain location. It's essentially pitting cities and states against one another. Uh, and the largesse of that, of course, goes to this giant corporations. So those are a couple examples uh, of which there are many of corporate welfare. And I think I would say that in a society that has a certain amount of resources to deliver so much of them to wealthy corporations that could certainly afford uh, the ability to, uh, whether it's relocate or or just conduct their business, uh, rather than having them pay their fair share, uh, is kind of abhorrent. What are the biggest chunks of these giveaways? Like, what in what form do these giveaways come? Right. I mean, some of them are are certainly tax credits. Uh, you know, the the research and development tax credit is a big one. There's the tax credits for expensing. Then, as I mentioned, there are you know, very large, just 
cash giveaways mm-hmm. uh, that are done. One of the more famous examples of this was, of course, Amazon's HQ2 yeah. uh, competition, <laughs> where where they pitted all of these cities in this large contest, this absurd contest, right. to see how much money it they would be able to give to Amazon for the the privilege of hosting their facilities. Now, uh, as it turned out, uh, Amazon ended up going with two cities, Washington, D.C. and New York City. New York City eventually revolted and decided not to give what was going to be a package of billions of dollars in in grants, mostly, just, just actual handouts. What's funny is that later on, months later, uh, after Amazon backs out of the deal, uh, they very quietly go back into New York because that's where a lot of the talent is. Of course, without taking any money. I know. No, so it's just, so it just sort of just hilarious. Yeah. Living in Seattle, we watched this whole HQ two thing unfold uh, in sure. vivid detail, and uh, it was just an astonishingly predatory approach. And and of course, here's the thing: is that I've run technology companies before and there was zero doubt in my mind that they were ever going to they were either going to land in new york uh, dc san francisco or la you know like there was no there was no chance they were going to wind up in akron ohio or some small town in nebraska all you know all of whom were sort of clamoring to be part of this uh, because at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is where the talent is. And there's a very short list of places that have enough people to deliver that talent. So it, That's it just, absolutely correct. It's and, just and, terrible. And, and sort of the other part of this, and, and really the real ulterior motive to why Amazon conducted this contest, was to gather information sure. on what these cities that had no chance of locating or getting HQ2 in their neighborhood Uh, just to see what they would be willing to give up. Because, of course, Amazon isn't just citing headquarters. It's citing uh, all sorts of things, right? Uh, 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 Data centers and warehouses and all these other facilities. And now that they are armed with this information, oh, Cleveland, you were willing to give up $1 billion for a headquarters. Well, we can't give you that, but how about this warehouse? What are you willing to give up for that now that we already have your bid? So it was a negotiating tactic as well uh, in, a, in a bid to get even more money. And, of course, uh, if you look at the totality of Amazon subsidies that have been given, corporate welfare that has been given uh, from, from cities for warehouses and data centers and things like that, uh, it's, it spreads into the billions and billions of dollars. And, of course, Amazon is like the highest valued company in the world. I've got a question to come back to this idea of subsidizing profitable corporations. Uh, One of the ways we think about that, of course, is through the tax code. But the Trump administration uniquely has been willing to use regulatory mechanisms. And I I know that you wrote about this recently related to payday lenders and what they're doing with what was supposed to be the Consumer Protection Agency. And similarly, what the Department of Education is doing for for for-profit educational institutions. Uh, can you talk about how they're manipulating these regulations to basically get them off the hook? Yeah, absolutely. And and thank you for bringing that up, because sometimes we focus too much on the actual cash value sort of handouts that are given to corporations and a little less on these regulatory favors, which translate 
uh, often into much more money than than any kind of direct grant or or even direct tax break. Uh, so the example, one of the examples you brought up was payday lending, which I have written about. Um, there's a guy, his name uh, last name is Hodges. He runs a, a payday lender called Advanced Financial out in Tennessee, and he was caught on tape bragging to his fellow payday lenders that the way to get things done in the Trump administration is to give more money to their reelection campaign, and that gives me the clout to go ahead and get regulations changed. And, and we saw a very notable example of this very recently. So the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau changed under the Trump appointee, Kathy Craninger, changed the uh, payday lending rule that the Obama administration had put out. But it changed most of it, but decided it would not change this one provision, which forces payday lenders to get approval from customers before continually trying to hit their bank account multiple times, even when there are insufficient funds. This is a way to rack up fees, both by the bank and also by the payday lender. So CFPB, even under the Trump administration, said, we're not going to do that. That clearly is abusive, and uh, we're going to keep this rule in. Well, after they said that twice, once when they changed the rule and the second time in court, this Hodges fellow and his wife gave something like $780,000 to the Trump administration, re-election campaign, and also various Republican uh, members of Congress. And within six months of giving all that money, Craninger had changed her mind. She said that she would act upon this petition that Hodge's company, Advanced Financial, made to change those payment provisions. And it was really one of the most stark examples of pay-to-play that I've seen in the Trump era. It's, you know, the, the payday lender literally gave these donations and bought a regulation that is going to be worth, you know, untold amounts of money to his business. Draining the swamp. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Um, we're a little less focused on tax transfers. Those are obviously important, but we often think about where the real money is. And of course, that is in these corporations' profits and what they do to manipulate government rules to maximize their profits. And that is a great example, um, of course, the one you just gave. The other one that we think a lot about is actually the welfare programs that exist. Ultimately, the way that they have been designed by successive administrations, Democrat, but of course, particularly Republican administrations, is they put such an emphasis on work that we, the taxpayer, end up doing, we basically subsidize profitable corporations. So with EITC, TANF, SNAP, whatever the programs are, you, the taxpayer, are subsidizing work, which is another way of saying you are subsidizing wildly profitable corporations. You know, the McDonald's employee is being subsidized by the taxpayer, despite the fact that McDonald's is wildly profitable. Or the Walmart employee is being subsidized by the taxpayer for food stamps or EITC programs. Do you see it that way? Yeah, absolutely. And what we continually see, particularly in uh, states held by Republicans, is this focus on putting work requirements on Medicaid uh, uh, beneficiaries, putting drug test requirements on them, doing everything they can to sort of chip away 
uh, not only at their eligibility, but in some ways their dignity, uh, to, to make it harder and harder to become eligible for these benefits when there are really no such restrictions on corporate welfare exactly. uh, to a similar degree. I'm not saying drug test corporations, but what I'm saying is I don't know. That It'd be sort of there's, entertaining there's a to... real inequity there between <laughs> what it takes for a low-wage uh, resident of a, a particular state to qualify for benefits and what it takes for a corporation to do so. You've been studying this a long time and writing about it. How did we get into this mess? I mean, what do you trace it to? Can you thumbnail the history of this? It's certainly something that, you know, since the sort of break off in the 1970s of wages and productivity, since we've seen corporations really retrench and and see themselves as only responsible to shareholders rather than being responsible to stakeholders, including the community at large and their workers and things like that. Uh, we've really seen, you know, this 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 growth of a business class that is more rapacious, that seeks advantage at every opportunity, including government advantage. Uh, and maybe where prior to the Reagan Revolution they would be, they would have been less successful in acquiring this this kind of corporate welfare benefits. Uh, these days, the bar is open. <laughs> They're ready and willing to give these handouts. I also think that as we've seen budgets become much more strapped in cities, much more pressure on cities to uh, perform, we have seen this sort of contest arise between cities, between states to compete, to acquire workers, and, and usually public money is at stake there. So uh, that's a somewhat recent phenomenon that I think coincides just with the ways in which funding at state level for cities has dropped in sort of a more conservative moment that uh, we've seen since since the 1970s and 1980s. It's just become more difficult for a city to make their budget, and they see the opportunity for uh, not only uh, bringing companies in, but also privatizing their own services. There's a whole other part of this corporate welfare that, that we haven't really gotten into and talked about, the ability for uh, private corporations to take over functions that were previously subscribed to government. Uh, they get them for you know a small payment up front, and they get to keep them for years, if not decades, into the future, making huge markups in the exchange. We've seen this privatization in a number of places, whether you're talking about the parking meters in Chicago, uh, or you're talking about water systems, or you're talking about uh, uh, education in some senses. I I think that should maybe fall into this conversation as well, uh, because it is a way in which the government uh, essentially engages in a fire sale and uh, large corporate interests pick up these things at a discount and are able to make a whole lot of money off them. So what are the top five things we should do <laughs> to fix this? <laughs> There's certainly a lot that can be done to equalize uh, these outcomes, to fight corporate power over a number of ways. Obviously, changes to the tax code, that's a pretty simple uh, response. Uh, another would be stronger enforcement against concentrations of corporate power and monopolies. Right. Uh, I think that shrinking 
the uh, extreme economic and political power of these large actors would make it less likely for them to acquire these benefits from the public. You know, uh, one thing that we've seen that, that has been successful are almost these non-aggression pacts between states and cities. I'll give you one example. Uh, in Kansas City, right. uh, the Kansas City region, which straddles Kansas and Missouri, for years, companies would just bounce between Kansas City, Missouri, and Kansas City, Kansas, and take welfare benefits from the, the, the various that. cities. Yeah. yeah. And so what they finally did earlier this year is essentially a non-aggression pact, a truce uh, between Kansas City, Missouri and Kansas City, Kansas that says we're not going to do that anymore. It doesn't make sense for our bottom line to uh, just hand out this money, even though no economic activity or productivity is taking place. So uh, I think there are solutions like that out there, creative solutions that retain you know, a role for the public sector and understand that in, in a time with, where, where money is, is somewhat scarce, especially at the state and local level, giving it all away in the name of economic development to large corporations to try to uh, lure them into the town is probably not the best outcome compared to improving public services, improving the workforce, improving human capital, uh, and then the companies will want to come there anyway. Yeah, correct. David, we have one one more um, question we love to ask, which is, um, why do you do this work? What brings you to it? <laughs> well, I mean, I believe in a, a, a certain opportunity and fairness and uh, the ability for people who work hard to be able to get ahead. I mean, those are just my personal values. Uh, I think that the challenge of our time is how we have allowed concentrated corporate power to uh, maintain such control over society. What we're trying to build at the American Prospect is an organization that really talks about these issues uh, in ways maybe others don't, uh, to tell this story of power and who has it and what they're doing with it. And frequently that happens not from Washington, but from the corporate boardroom, because, you know, regulation is going to happen. I mean, we all have rules that uh, we abide by, whether in markets or, or, or personal rules uh, that are going to be followed. And if government is not going to conduct those regulations, if if deregulation is going to you know win the day, it doesn't end regulation. It just transfers yeah, it just, into corporate America. Right, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a question of who gets to write the rules. Are they going to be written in a democratic way through a democratic process of elected representatives? Or are they going to be written in C-suites by people who have their own interests at heart and, and, and don't have the public interest in mind? So I feel like what uh, my work tries to illuminate is these areas where corporate power has, has run amok, where uh, uh, the public isn't getting a fair shake, and how that can be ameliorated in some way. That's kind of always been sort of my guidestone in, in, in my work, and uh, you know I hope for it to continue. Well, David, thank you so much for spending this time with us uh, and for your work. There's much left to do. 
certainly so. But yeah. uh, the work goes on. Thank, thank you guys for uh, for having me on. Okay, thank, thank you so much, David. All right, great. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Well, that was really great, Nick. I, he is one of my favorite writers. I've really enjoyed reading him over the years, and he was even uh, better in person. That was really awesome. Yeah, and now we get to talk to this fantastic woman, Rana Faruhar, uh, who is the global business columnist uh, and an editor, associate editor at the Financial Times, um, and she's written uh, some really interesting books about uh, global capitalism uh, and knows a ton about it. Should be fascinating. Yeah, she's one of the most fascinating commentators on uh, on finance, and she's written really one of the books that I enjoyed the most, which is called Makers and Takers, uh, which is really prescient about yeah. the moment we're in. And then equally interesting, she's got this book that just came out, yeah. uh, which is called Don't, Don't Be Don't, Evil. Don't Be Evil. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I'm really, really curious to yeah. hear what she's got to say. Hi, Rana. Hey, how are you? Welcome uh, to the podcast. And there are so many thousands of things uh, that we could talk to you about because <laughs> uh, the world is so rich in uh, economic calamity. Before we start, tell us what you're up to and pitch anything you would like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, so um, my day job is as a columnist and an associate editor at the Financial Times. I'm also a global economic analyst at CNN. In this episode, uh, what we're talking about is what we love to refer to as the parasite economy, which is... (laughs) which is I'm the, familiar with it. Yeah. <laughs> which is the degree to which we have organized our economic system to basically benefit large corporations uh, at the cost to the greater society. In your last book Makers and Takers, you you specifically address how finance has done that to a certain extent in business. So we'd love for you to unpack that a little bit. Sure. Well, um, one of the things I do in in that first book is kind of look at the financial system and what it was set up to do and what it is really doing today. So if you go way back in history, really to, you know, the the birth of modern capitalism, Adam Smith, um, you know, 18th, 19th century, um, thinking about how economies worked. Finance was really supposed to be kind of a helpmeet to other industries. So the financial sector was set up to sit in the middle um, of the economy between um, individuals, uh, savers that wanted to find some kind of productive way to grow their their own savings and wealth, and people that needed that money. So um, that could be small business owners, might be merchants, might be people that want to borrow for a house. And the financial sector was basically supposed to sit as an intermediary between those two bodies and and help to funnel money where it was most productive. And if you go back to, say, the 1970s or so, that's mostly what the financial sector did. It, it, It mediated between buyers and sellers. Today, only about 15% of all the money that is sloshing through the global financial system goes back into the real economy, into Main Street, to people who want to, say, buy a home or start a business. And so that kind of begs the question, well, what's the other 85% doing? And what it's doing is existing in a kind of a closed loop of buying and selling of existing assets, stocks, bonds, houses. You know, a lot of people feel that some, there's a disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street. I mean, if you look out today just at the headlines, we are at pretty much all-time record high stock prices, and yet 
we've been in a recovery, and I put that in quotation marks for about 10 years, that sure as heck doesn't feel like it for most right. people. Mm-hmm. And this this parasite economy, as you've called it, um, a rentier economy is what some economists would call it, is very much a reason for that. And the financial system is, is um, at the center of that problem. Right. It's like this sort of private Ponzi scheme uh, that, <laughs> right. that right. exists to benefit like a very small group of characters. And if I might, you know, one of my favorite dimensions of this is the stock buybacks industry, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which is this fantastic example where approximately a trillion dollars per year is tossed back and forth between large public companies and Wall Street. (laughs) Yep. That is the prime example of just how Kafkaesque the system is (laughs) right right now. And, uh, and that's actually, you know, that that issue of share buybacks um, is, is sort of the, the thread between my first book and my second book. Um, you know, when I was trying to think of the when I was writing Makers and Takers and I was thinking of like, what is the most bizarre use of the financial system that I can come up with? And the one that I found, which leads directly into my second book, was which company is giving back the most money to its richest investors in the form of these share buybacks? Well, Apple. You know, I mean, Apple is the wealthiest company in the world, first trillion dollar company. Uh, It and the other tech giants, which, you know, have most of the cash on hand in corporate America now uh, and in the world, have stored a lot of their money in recent years in offshore bank accounts because they can pay lower taxes if they if they sort of relocate profits overseas. And so they don't have to pay taxes back to the government, but then they'll issue debt on the U.S. bond markets and then use that that hoard of money to pay back shareholders by buying up their stock that artificially bolsters the share price. I mean, it really is a Ponzi scheme. And then that makes the wealthiest uh, people in the country that own most of the stock even wealthier. So we have less in the tax coffers to pay for the kinds of social programs that might enrich um, folks and allow them to create the next apples. But we have more in the pockets of the wealthiest investors. Um, And it's worth noting just one stat there that about uh, 10% of investors own 80% of the stock in this in this country. So, And the 10% of that 10% own 80% of yeah. that, to be clear. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, right. It, it, and I think that that gets to an important point, which is that this is, it's not even so much a problem of the 1% as the 0.001% Correct. we're talking about here. Hey, Ronna, you brought up an interesting point there, which is what the alternative could be the use of this capital. I mean, 15% of those capital flows are going back to what you might call real business as opposed to parasitic business. Um, yeah. That means, of course, 85% is is going into this kind of alternative economy. What could be done with that money if we were putting it back into the real economy and real businesses? Well, uh, two or three things come to mind there. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is to look at the way the U.S. economy is run compared to, say, the Chinese economy. Now, I I don't want to laud China because it's an autocratic nation with a lot of its own problems. But right now, 
Um, the Chinese, which have a totally different state-run kind of economy, are investing a lot in infrastructure, um, you know, new rail lines, new um, technological developments. They're actually trying to recreate the Silk Road um, with a, a kind of a unifying infrastructure program to build economic development. That's real investing. That's how you build the next sort of innovation economy. In the U.S., um, Companies are not investing in those sorts of things. Now, why aren't they? Well, the returns simply aren't as great. You know, it's it's better to build really expensive condominiums um, or better still to trade spliced and diced securities representing those condominiums than it is to, say, you know, fix bridges or crumbling water mains right. or, or uh, build rural broadband and do the sorts of things that would actually create the next investment boom. And that's the problem, in a nutshell, with our country right now, we are we are um, eating our seed corn. As a matter of fact, we've already eaten it, and we're not putting any more seeds in the ground. And when you talk to corporate executives, what they will tell you is, well, I mean, if we had places to invest this money profitably, if there was yeah. demand to meet, then we wouldn't do the stock buybacks. But of course, it's a chicken and egg problem. If you were paying your workers the money that you're currently using to do stock buybacks, they would be buying stuff which would require you to make investments. <laughs> right? Like yeah, if you the took supply, the, yeah, right. If you take the trillion dollars that you're spending on stock buybacks and make it wages, well, you will have a lot more investing to do because you will have a lot more demand. You know, it's this, it's this fascinating thing. It is fascinating. And, you know, there's a couple of other things I would throw in there. If companies were actually paying uh, their taxes appropriately in the U.S. or, you know, and and to be fair, a lot of them are doing things that are perfectly legal. For sure. You know, it's like we need to change the rules. But if we have that kind of investment being given to a larger community of stakeholders like the government with the taxpayers that funded their development to begin with, like, you know, if you go back, you think about you know, what has made the richest companies in the world rich. Most of them are big tech firms. GPS, the Internet, touchscreen technology. This is all stuff that was developed by the government, which was funded by you and I. So if we had that corporate wealth being shared with the appropriate stakeholders going back into federal coffers so we could do education reform, so we could do infrastructure building, so we could do these things that would actually then create the next generation of companies, you'd get a virtual uh, you know, cycle going. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> we have a system that's designed to incentivize all the wrong things. Yeah, exactly. No, it is. It is. It's a sad state of <laughs> affairs. Isn't it? So but it doesn't have to be that way. No, it doesn't. I mean, doesn't. there are other models. There are there are indeed other models. So in your new book, Don't Be Evil, you also point out how little these companies actually contribute back in taxes in particular. So talk yeah. a little bit about the new book too. You know, let me step back and put all this in the context of the political economy, you know, and we're having such a robust debate in the US right now about what should capitalism look like? I mean, who are we going to elect? Who are the Democrats going to put up as their next candidate? I mean, that says a lot about where our debate is going. A lot of this debate is about globalization and the last 40 or 50 years of um, global capitalism. And in that system, the idea was that capital, goods, and people should all be able to travel across borders. But in reality, what happened is that capital 
traveled very freely across borders. Um, goods, less so people, not at not all. Not all, right. Um, and that's why you had, you know, the biggest financial institutions getting so big and powerful. Now you have this new digital economy. And workers getting weaker. And workers getting weaker, exactly. Correct. right. So lab- the labor capital uh, asymmetry of power was really at the heart of a lot of the problems we're experiencing in liberal, liberal democracies right now. So fast forward now to the digital economy, the move into a world in which most wealth is now in data and in IP, that puts this whole trend on steroids because if capital can move quickly across borders, data can move even faster, digital data across borders. So you have these companies now, and Facebook is in some ways like the the neoliberal apex. You know, it's this company um, that is is domiciled nowhere, you know, has more users than the largest countries in the world, can put its intellectual property and its um, its profits and its information wherever it wants is kind of supranational. That takes this problem of the balance of power between corporations and labor, between capital and income, that takes it to a whole new level. And so I think we're going to see, in the same way we saw kind of a calls to occupy Wall Street, I think we're going to start seeing calls to occupy Silicon Valley. Yeah, wow. You know, it's one of the things that they live in this way where our normal rules and mechanisms for reining this in, yeah. in this kind of national way through democratic mechanisms, they can, I guess, subvert. Outrun them. Outrun them. Outrun them. Yeah, yeah. they can outrun them. Yeah. yeah. And, and out by them. I mean, one of the really fascinating things I found when I was researching Don't Be Evil, I was I was trying to find independent research on a lot of the, the these topics. You know, how should we think about monopoly power? How much corporate power is too much? What's the way to get more of an equal sharing between capital and labor? As I would try and investigate these things, I would find that many of the people working on these issues were actually consultants, paid consultants. Um, for the big tech firms. So, and, and this speaks to the fact that tech and finance have uh, are now the two most powerful lobbying forces in Washington and in Brussels and in most capitals around the world. And they've bought up uh, not only a lot of politicians, but a lot of the kind of intellectual debate around these topics. So it's difficult to even find unbiased academic research. It's, dip- it's difficult to kind of create a clear narrative um, because Everyone has been sort of intellectually captured by the idea that, oh, of course we need Google and Facebook to be this size. Of course we we need the system to work the way it does. Right. Because to imagine otherwise would be to, you know, kill jobs in the economy. <laughs> right. Although ironic. And, and, you know, this is um, not to kind of make a big topic bigger, but this also has a kind of a geopolitical angle, because right now, as we're moving to a world in which there are now kind of two major systems, there's the U.S. style capitalist system and there's the state run Chinese economy. And we are in one world with two systems and it's clashing. Um, you are now seeing the biggest American companies using that as a sort of a lever to make sure that they don't get regulated. So you've got the biggest tech companies saying, oh, don't don't break us up because we're your national champions in the fight against China. You know, it's just a whole nother sort of perverse way to uh, allow the, the big to stay bigger. I actually think that this is not a debate, as it's often put, between innovation and regulation. It's a debate between 
concentration and innovation because innovation comes from small, yeah, you know, it comes right. from people and, and small companies and, and, you know, creatives working nimbly. It doesn't come from giant conglomerates. Absolutely. And, and mostly it's a debate, my humble opinion, over power. Uh, well, yeah. yes, yes, indeed. Because <laughs> like, yes, it's concentrations yeah. of power, power, really, that ultimately put this in place, right? right? Yeah. And, I mean, okay. you know, like, you know, our podcast, Pitchfork Economics, is devoted to, you know, debunking neoliberalism writ large and pointing the way to new things and the sort of the ethic and the culture that emerged, you know, that neoliberalism produced and weaponized. And it is a sign of the times that the best known moral claim by an American business is don't be evil, which (laughs) which is, and and here's the thing. If you just put aside whether Google has lived up to that, that creator or not, how did we get to the point where the highest standard a business will hold itself (laughs) to is simply the (laughs) absence of criminal behavior? Like, you know, like, like, and and that is neoliberalism (laughs) in a nutshell. You know, it's funny. You're reminding me, Jeff Bezos, the head of Amazon, who, by the way, was one of the seed investors in Google, actually was asked about that one time. Like, you know, when, when people started realizing maybe this, don't be evil thing is is a little bit BS. He was asked about it and he's like, well, yeah, of course you shouldn't be evil, but you also shouldn't have to say it. <laughs> so what Jeff Bezos <laughs> is saying, uh, maybe your slogan's a little, little cynical, you know, that's not a good thing. Yeah. In the book, do you, do you go over, because there's obviously the political and policy dimension to this, but there is a little bit of the ethical dimension of this. Nick often talks about yeah. how his father would think about the family business. Now, some of that, of course, was constrained by taxation, regulation, and rules, and some of it was constrained norms. by norms. Just norms. Yeah. By culture, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's a huge issue. I mean, that was actually something I looked at a lot in my first book, because uh-huh. I, I, and then I'll come back to your, to your point, but in my first book, I, I looked a bit at the comparison between the U.S.-style market system and, say, Germany's market system, which is a a bit, you know, it's got its problems in the banking sector, but it's a little more fair. It's, I was looking in particular at kind of the, the manufacturing sector in Germany and around Stuttgart, the Mittelstand, as, as it's known. And you see, um, for example, worker to CEO pay ratios that are much, much lower than in the U.S. And I remember one time interviewing a CEO in Germany and saying, well, you know, how was it that this country was able to, you know, create the all these highly paid, highly skilled manufacturing workers, stay globally competitive? And there was just a cultural sense, like he felt like he couldn't walk into the, the local diner and like hold up his head if he was getting paid 350 times what his you know, lowest paid worker was getting paid. And so there was a kind of a cultural issue, but there's efficiency in that because, um, you know, one of the reasons that countries like Germany or Japan, for example, another place where workers are are relatively highly paid, um, are able to do, um, you know, great innovation is that there's a tight system where management and workers move together, operate together, share knowledge. It actually creates a higher skill set. It allows them to gain competitive advantage in certain industries. So there are ways to think about this that are win-win. You know, yeah. it, it's, it doesn't have to be so adversarial. Um, but, you know, to your, to your point about culture in Silicon Valley, that is a tricky one. I mean, one of the things I really grappled with is, okay, um, California is a blue state. You know, a lot of uh, heads of tech companies would, would count themselves as progressives. 
But I actually think that they, in some ways, are libertarian because really they're about we want to be able to do whatever we want, move fast and break things. Anybody that gets in our way is a problem, including society, <laughs> you know, and, and that's, I think that that has allowed people to feel that they are above the law, above For sure. um, the, de- you know, the demos. And you see Zuckerberg in, on, on the Hill. Uh, and it's just very clear that these companies don't, don't feel that they're held to the same standards as, as others. For sure. I, those folks mostly are not progressive. I call them faux-gressives. <laughs> which is they're progressive yeah, right up. Until, I may have to feel that. Yeah, yeah. progressives <laughs> right up. They're progressive right up until the point where they may be constrained or may it, where, where it may yeah, cost yeah. them money. And then they're like, yeah. oh, hell no. Hell no. Yeah. They're neoliberals, but without the overt racism. Yes, <laughs> that's right. And it's, a, it's, a, it's tricky because yeah. that cloaks a lot of the really bad stuff on the class side. It does. It's funny. Um well, and, and you know, I, I kind of have a weird begrudging respect for the the really odious people like Peter Thiel that will just come out and say, yeah, you know, I just want to have California secede from the union and I'm moving to New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. At least he's honest about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we do our podcast in these conversations, uh, we call it Pitchfork Economics, of course, because that's a little bit of a prediction of what might happen if we don't uh, change. On the other hand, mm-hmm. we have conversations with people now that were not happening just as little as two years ago, you know, it does feel mm-hmm. like there is a legitimate conversation about the nature of American yeah. capitalism in ways that uh, have have not really been for a very long time. So I'm curious, do you do you find hope in all of this? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that there has been a lot of movement. It's funny, I, um, you know, I got into some of the kind of deep conversations that we're having now, really. Um, in that first book that was published in 2016. And I felt like it was almost too early because I feel like a lot of things that were in that book are just now in the mainstream. Um, But I I do think we're at a turning point. I think that not, you know, we talk a lot about what's going to happen in 2020. In some ways, I think it's what happens in 2021 that will, will really show us where we are. I mean, no matter who is in office, whether it's a progressive and we'll, you know, then we have to uh, see whether we can actually institute kind of a new way of doing things or whether Trump gets another um, a term and we end up with, um, I think, you know, a, a market crash when when people finally kind of give up the magical thinking that we can constantly prop up the markets with easy money. I think that that's going to be a really telling point as to, okay, we now know the old system is broken, but what's the new paradigm? You know, we've had this crisis of the old order as the historian Art Schlesinger would say, but where are we going? What does the future look like? Um, and also, what's what's happening in China? What's happening in Europe? I mean, these are these are parts of the world where they're also grappling with entirely new systemic change around the economy. And you know, when we did the fifteen dollar minimum wage in two thousand twelve, thirteen, you know, people thought we had lost our minds, and now it's. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it's yeah. like, well, now they're course, all clamoring. Each yeah, other yeah. Really. yeah, it was everybody's yeah. idea now. So, <laughs> well, and, you know, that actually the, um, the, the wage question is, I think, going to get more and more pressing in the digital age. I, yeah. I actually was um, I, I recently reviewed um, uh, Daniel Susskind's new book, um, A World Without Work. I don't know if you've seen that. I reviewed it in the FT. And it's interesting because he he's a he's a British economist, labor economist. He posits that all the advantages that we've seen accrue to capital um, away from labor 
are as the robots take over, it's going to, it means that there's even going to be fewer capitalists, you know? So it's like, there'll be no labor and there'll be like five capitalists, including Mark Zuckerberg. And so what do you do? I mean, it's an extreme prediction, but what do you do in that world? How do you think about these problems of neoliberalism? And, you know, I, I got to think we're going to have some major social unrest before yeah. we get to that point. You're basically going to be sharpening up the guillotines. <laughs> Pitchforks, baby. <laughs> yeah, <Pitchforks>. exactly. <laughs> Well, we always ask our guests one question, which is, why do you do this work? Oh, my gosh. That's, that's such a great question. You know, I'm um, right before you called, I'm putting the finishing touches on a, a big FT weekend feature I'm doing on um, how mobile home communities, uh, residents are, are getting together in cooperatives to buy up parks with the help of some community lenders um, in order to avoid being taken over by Blackstone and Samzell and all these private equity guys. And I went out and I spent some time with these people. And I mean, there's just nothing more interesting in the world than going and talking to people that are trying to make their lives better, other people's lives better. I mean, like real people, they're just so interesting. And it's such a privilege to get to tell their stories. And, you know, that's why I do this work. Thank you very much yeah, for spending what a, time yeah. with you. What a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Thank you so much. Cool. All right. Thanks, yeah. guys. Okay. Okay. Well. Take care. Bye. Bye. So, Zach, that was an amazing conversation with Rana. Uh, she's so articulate I know, and I know. sharp. <laughs> it really feels like we've been on similar paths. She, yeah. Her mark was. 2012 uh, and 2016 as yeah. these marks, and you you've been on this similar path yeah. where you've been ahead of this curve. Um, so interesting, super interesting. Yeah, but you know, our conversation with her brings to mind local corporate misbehavior. Um, you know, and you know this thing that happened in 2013 in the state of Washington, where we live, when the state legislature and the governor handed Boeing. billion in order to maintain, quote unquote, maintain and grow its workforce within the state. Yeah, how did that work out? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, over the next few years, they laid off 12,000 workers. And, you know, even worse, and, uh, you know, I grew up in Seattle. I know you've been here a long time. For local people, we take the recent Boeing news about the 737, 737 Max, Max yeah. really personally. Sure, of course. Um, you know, just this horrific cutting of corners and malfeasance that has shown up, or you know, and that just that sort of naked pursuit of maximizing profits and shareholder value and executive bonuses. It's just embarrassing and egregious. Well, you know, it reflected me on all the things that we we're talking about in this episode where they are in really naked pursuit of a parasitic corporate behavior. Yeah, right. absolutely. They're, they're getting massive tax subsidies. Right. They're manipulating regulations to benefit yeah. themselves. Exactly. And then they're re- really, the, the other thing, of course, is they, they cre- complete the trifecta on trickle-down, which is that they repress their workers' wages, yes. which is one of the other big things that they've been doing all over the world. Yeah. And simultaneous to that, what does that create? Not a better product. No. It doesn't create better, safer air. It actually <laughs> has created something really, really dangerous. Right, yeah. exactly. And, it, you know, it's just appalling and embarrassing. And the neoliberal cherry on the top of the Sunday, after this entire debacle, is to give this clown Mullenberg, the CEO, 
a $60 million exit bonus while they're laying people off the production lines. That's right. Right? Like, what the hell? Yeah. I mean, proving to ordinary Americans, again, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that modern capitalism is corrupt and awful. And parasitic. Yeah. I mean, this is just cheap parasite behavior. Just awful. And, you know... Like, thank you, Boeing. <laughs> Congratulations. I mean, why that guy doesn't go to jail is the question we should all be asking ourselves. Yeah. Like, how can you not be held responsible for that behavior? And the reality is, if it was just isolated to Boeing and we were sore about it because yeah. we're here in the Pacific Northwest, it'd be yeah. one thing. But this is behavior we know is being replicated in Everywhere. industry after industry yeah. all over the country right. and really all over the world. Right. And it's tied to this kind of parasites mindset that they're willing to use the public uh, public dollars yeah. to build their companies and then they come in and they want to undermine the yeah. public support and your ability to shop and behave as consumers in the economy and use every imaginable mechanism to benefit them privately it's just yeah. a, it's a crazy sort of circle that we found yeah. ourselves in welcome to neoliberalism so anyway um uh, it was great talking to our guests um these are obviously Highly, um, these are very difficult challenges for the country to meet, um, very complex problems. But, uh, you know, we think it's important that people are at least identifying and, you know, people are talking about them. That's right. Well, you know, I think we say this a lot and it's important for us to all remember that we made decisions that got us into this mess. Yes. And we, we can, can make, make decisions to get decisions us out. Get us out. But the only way you could do that is you have to identify the problem. Yeah. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.